Good morning. My name is Kelly Scott, and I'm interim pastor for discipleship here at Trinity and a local mission partner of Trinity with a ministry called Athletes in Action at the University of Virginia. If you are new to Trinity, I just want to add my welcome to you this morning. I'd love to meet you after the service. Over the past several weeks, you might just have heard that we have a missions conference next weekend. And so our sermons this week and next will be oriented around the calling and mission that God has given us, his church. The mission of sharing the hope that we have in Christ in word and deed as we live in and engage with the world around us. And it's a good thing that we set aside a weekend and some sermons to give particular attention to the mission of the church. It is worthy of our time, it's worthy of our attention, it's worthy of our focused efforts. But there's also a danger in setting aside a time specifically to focus on mission, and that's that we could compartmentalize the mission of the church in our hearts and minds and lives, that we, we could relegate mission to a weekend conference. Of all the aspects of our lives as Christians, it seems that mission is the easiest to see as an addendum or an extracurricular activity, so to speak rather than seeing it as integral to our life in Christ. And this plays out in, in the history of the church. While there have been some churches and movements so outwardly focused on mission that they lose connection to worship and devotion and formation and community, losing their heart, their source, their sincerity, other churches can become so inwardly focused that mission becomes an afterthought, ironically, to their own detriment. And so one of my hopes this morning is that the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians will help us to dispel any notion that a church can be healthy if mission is isolated from our worship of God, from our growth in Christ, and from our life together in community. We'll be reading this morning from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. So please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Devote yourselves to prayer being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. My goal this morning is twofold. I do want us to take in and to digest the words that we just read and to think about what they entail for our lives. We're going to see that, that Paul describes here a, a mission shaped by grace. But first, I want to take just a few minutes to see how these words fit into Paul's letter to the Colossians as a whole and to see how even the structure or the flow of the book of Colossians reveals the interdependent or interconnected relationship between worship and discipleship and community and mission. It reveals a, a mission essential to the church. And so for the next couple minutes, and I just want you to hang with me here for a couple minutes, we're going to do like a, a 30,000 foot flyover of the book of Colossians. The words that we just read mark the end of the body of Paul's letter. And so he ends speaking of mission, which is fitting. But significantly, it's not the only place in the book of Colossians that Paul talks about mission. 
Listen to how the letter begins. Colossians, and this is printed in your order of worship. Colossians 1, 3 through 6. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. And so we see in these words that, that Paul immediately introduces the outward-facing, missional, expanding nature of the gospel or the good news of Jesus. He reminds the Colossian believers that not only did this message come to them from the outside, but that it continues to go out and bear fruit throughout the world. This is how he starts his letter. A few sentences later, some of you may know that, that Paul provides one of the most comprehensive and beautiful descriptions of Christ in all of Scripture. The image of the invisible God, the, the creator and rightful heir of all things in heaven and on earth, who is before all things and who sustains all things and in whom all things hold together, and on and on, this beautiful confession of Christ. And where does Paul's mind go after this worshipful confession? His spirit-led mind goes from worship back to mission. At the end of chapter 1, Paul talks about suffering for the sake of making Christ our hope of glory known to all people. He says, and again printed in your order of worship, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. The Greek word there for proclaim, which could be translated declare or announce, is used 18 times in the New Testament, almost exclusively for making Christ known to those who do not yet believe in him. He's talking about mission again. In chapter 2, Paul transitions from, from mission to encouraging the Colossian believers to remain rooted in Christ, who frees us from religious performance and who frees us from the power of sin through his death and resurrection. In chapter 3, then, Paul describes the character of the kingdom of God, the love and forgiveness and unity and peace with which we are to clothe ourselves as those who have been raised with Christ. And so what we see is that Paul's charge to the work of mission in chapter 4 flows out of this description of this new community. Because an authentic life and community in Christ cannot help but overflow into prayer and proclamation that others may experience life in him as well, that others would be invited into this new community. And so what we see is that even a quick survey of Colossians shows us that the call to make Christ in word and deed is not an, oh yeah, don't forget about mission addendum tacked on to the end of the letter, but rather it's a theme that is woven throughout the letter and is inseparable from our worship of God. It's inseparable from our formation rooted in Christ and it's inseparable from our life together in him. You observant Bible readers will know that there isn't a separate chapter or book or section in the Bible on mission. It's everywhere. It's woven throughout the Bible. It's woven throughout the book of Colossians. And we were made for mission to be woven throughout our lives. 
I actually think we know that even from everyday examples, uh, this has to be true. As a minister to, to student-athletes at, at UVA, I, I follow UVA sports uh, more than your average Joe, probably, maybe more than your average Wahoo. Although not as closely as some of you do, because some of you follow it like it's your job. <laughs> but regardless, um, you may know that one of the things that most of the UVA teams do in the off-season is that they schedule games. And this is interesting, because these games generally do not count for anything. There are no ACC champions or ACC standings or NCAA champions for off-season games. In fact, hardly anyone even knows that they're happening apart from the most avid fans. A team that might have 3,000 fans at a real game might only have 30 fans at an off-season game, even though they're free of charge. And so why do coaches schedule these seemingly meaningless games? Well, of course they do it because they know that there's this essential and reciprocal relationship between player development, team building, and the outward-facing nature of contending with other teams. Just as the athlete's personal development and training and the relationships that they have with one another on and off the field will, of course, have a dramatic impact on how they will play in their games together, at the same time, the outward-facing nature of a game does things for a team that no amount of internal practice could accomplish. The game will push athletes' physical and technical ability to or past the limit, but it ultimately refines them. The game will place strains on relationships and challenge those relationships, but on good teams, the end result is that the relationships and trust are strengthened through the games. And teams that do not have games on the horizon tend to forget their purpose and struggle to maintain motivation. You probably get the point. But in the same way that a team needs games in season and out of season, we, the church, need the outward face of engaging the world with the good news of Jesus. Not only because God has called us to do it and because he chooses broken people like us to do it, but even for our own growth in Christ, both personally and together. We need mission. The relationship is essential and the relationship is reciprocal. Mission will stretch us, whether it's local or global, whether it's in our neighborhood, on the other side of town. Mission will stretch us and challenge us and take us to our limit and expose our weaknesses. But in the end, it will deepen our faith and strengthen our love for God and others. By the way, I'm using an athletic analogy, uh, not because I, I work with athletes in action or because I get bonuses for athletic analogies, although they're nice, uh, but rather because scripture itself uses athletic analogies for the work of sharing the gospel. Paul uses athletic analogies for the work of sharing the gospel. The difference, of course, between competition in athletics and contending for the faith of the gospel is that we are not contending against those with whom we share. We're not trying to, to win a competition or win an argument or to move, some, move up some spiritual ranking through our efforts. We are simply inviting others into a love that we have received 
that has come to us. Our contention is against the deceitfulness of the world, the flesh, and the devil, the things that Pastor Mike has been talking about for the past month. The enticing claims that the world makes about what will satisfy our hearts. And so we are humbled as we go about the work of mission because we know that we are just as familiar with these deceits and enticements as the next person. That's because of our weakness that God gives us a mission shaped by grace. If you like alliterated subpoints, you can be on the lookout for the words reliance, reality, and reach. If not, don't worry about it. The thread that holds together every part of Paul's charge here in Colossians 4 is grace. The grace of God in Christ, which Paul's been describing for three chapters, we now see worked out in his call to the entire church in Colossae to be involved in the mission of proclaiming Christ. The entire church. First, we see a mission shaped by grace in the call to reliance on God, this call to prayer in verses 2, 3, and 4. In verse 2, we're called to devote ourselves to prayer, to be consistently steadfast in prayer, to be in prayer for the long haul. And verses 3 and 4 provide the content of those prayers. We're to pray for open doors to speak about Christ, meaning open hearts and minds as we just prayed for ourselves in the Song of Illumination. Well, we're to pray for open hearts and minds as well as for divinely ordered opportunities to share. And as God opens those doors, in verse 4, we're told that we're called to pray for clear communication of the mystery of God's salvation, now revealed and made known in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. We're to pray for the clear proclamation of the gospel. I would say that more than anything else, the necessity of prayer reminds us that our mission is truly shaped by grace. Only as we remember that our own life in Christ is not the result of our work, but of God's grace. And that any good that comes through our mission is ultimately not the result of our work or our words, but the work of God's grace. Only when we know this will we pray and call out to God for help. Only when we know that it's his work. I realize that, that some of you probably hate asking for help in general, right? There's the stereotypical dad, right, that, that hates asking for help. Uh, well, with people, I, I usually don't have that problem. I will often ask my family where something is when I'm trying to find something before I even spend 30 seconds searching for it. My family loves me for this. <laughs> also, uh, when dinner consists of, of a variety of ingredients on the counter, uh, rather than trusting my own instincts as to how to put this dinner together, I'll almost always ask to make sure that I'm putting my dinner together correctly and not missing any crucial ingredients or mixing something in that I shouldn't because well, that, that would just be a shame, right? Um, so this is the base of a running joke in my family, and, and they love me for this as well. Outside of the house, I, I'll walk into Lowe's, and my eye is immediately on the lookout for an employee who can help me, especially the older, wiser ones who seem like they have single-handedly built several neighborhoods from the ground up, right? 
I feel no need to wander around the store for 30 minutes asking for help, before asking for help. I'm not afraid to ask. But too frequently, I am not this way with God. With God, I often, too often, choose to waste time trying to accomplish things that I cannot accomplish or just find other things to do rather than asking for help. Sometimes it's too much of a good thing that gets in the way. Sometimes it's just reading more instead of praying, studying scripture more, meeting more people. But these can be excuses too because sometimes I just don't want to slow down and do the seemingly foolish thing of talking to an invisible God in silence. It is such a feeling of utter weakness, of helplessness. It does not make any worldly or business sense to pray. I'm not talking about mindfulness techniques and you can go to business conferences with mindfulness techniques. I'm talking about praying to God. It is a feeling of utter weakness. And I think that's at least part of the point. It's in this place of helplessness, in childlike persistence, in asking for help that our Father meets us, that he delights to meet us and embolden us and respond to our prayers for other, others according to his power and grace. You see, the reality is that, that I am, in fact, much more helpless and weak in the work of softening and reviving hearts and minds and restoring people, including myself, in the image of their creator than I even in when I walk into Lowe's not knowing what exactly I'm looking for. And that's pretty helpless. As Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And so we are to devote ourselves to prayer, reliant on God, being watchful or alert for ways to pray and for people to pray for and being thankful as we do. And that leads us to our next point. We see another aspect of a mission shaped by grace and the words, make the most of every opportunity at the end of verse five and let your conversation be always full of grace in verse six. And I say that because neither of these commands may be practiced apart from an ongoing lived experience of grace. They point these commands point to the reality of grace in our lives, the reality of grace in our lives. Making the most of every make the most of every opportunity. This is a phrase in which Paul's also hinting at the limited time that we have in light of Christ's return, but it implies a readiness to speak about Christ that can only be present when our hearts are attuned to God's grace in our lives. In other words, I, I am not going to be very watchful or ready to speak to others about Christ today if his grace is not on my mind today. To refer back to my earlier analogy, some of us know what it's like to be more than ready to discuss last night's game in every conversation we have throughout the day because we are still living in the glory or despair of that game. Likewise, it's only when we are consciously living in the reality of Jesus' death for us and his resurrection for us that we will be ready to make the most of every opportunity. The same is true with 
the words, let your conversation be always full of grace. Well, these words might refer to the content of our conversation, that we talk about grace, and it certainly does not exclude that. It more likely refers to the manner of our conversation here, how we would go about speaking to others. This seems to be confirmed by the following phrase, season with salt, which gives further description of a manner of speech, and which we'll get to in a moment. But let your conversation be always full of grace points to a manner of conversation and a posture toward others that will only be true of us when we know in our heart of hearts that God has dealt graciously with us and that he lavishes his love upon us. Only then will we enter into conversation with a sincere interest in others that is born of love and with a humility and a gentleness and a patience that could truly be called full of grace. When we do, our friends and neighbors will not only hear about the grace of God, but they will feel the grace of God in our manner. We spoke much more in depth about this uh, in a class, in an adult ed class here in the fall, but a conversation full of grace probably means that we will be slow to speak and quick to listen, quick to learn about others. In the same way that we see Jesus often drew out the hearts of those he encountered by asking them good questions. There's a great apologist and pastor, Francis Schaeffer, who said, uh, if I have only an hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. As we speak with family, friends, and neighbors, they will pick up on whether or not we are contending for ourselves or whether we are contending for them. And even if they don't realize it, what they will really be picking up on is the measure in which we ourselves are experiencing the grace of which we speak. The measure in which we are experiencing the reality of grace. Finally, we see that the mission is shaped by grace in the words, be wise in the way you act toward those outside the faith. In verse 5, and let your conversation be seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. I believe these commands point to the pervasive reach of grace, the pervasive reach of grace into every area of our lives. Just as today, uh, salt in the first century was used to preserve foods and to enhance flavor. Thanks to uh, G.K. Beale, I learned this week that the first century philosopher Plutarch wrote about the goodness of salt in food. He actually gets pretty excited about the usefulness and joys of salt uh, with food and drink. Uh, as far as I know, that was pre-margarita days. So he was, he was pretty excited about salt, but he also wrote of the figurative goodness of salt in conversations. In fact, using precisely the same language as Paul, he wrote of people gracing a conversation relating to whatever pastime or business they happen to be engaged by seasoning it with salt. Well, this shed some helpful light on Paul's meaning. And of course, for Paul, the, the preserving and flavor-enhancing salt of conversation is the good news of our new creation in Christ. And so how do we season our conversations? 
around whatever pastime or business we happen to be engaged in with the salt of the gospel. Well, I would say to do so, we, we need to be growing in our understanding of this pervasive reach of grace into every area of our lives, growing in our understanding of what our favorite pastimes and work look like in light of our renewal in Christ. How does the gospel restore goodness, beauty, and purpose to what otherwise can become mundane and meaningless in a fallen world? How does the gospel free me from being a slave to my work and to my favorite pastimes, from seeking too much from them and finding my identity in them? How does the gospel free me so that I'm freed up to enjoy God's gifts and to worship and enjoy God through those gifts? Do I know that in my own life enough to be able to articulate that to someone else? This is something I speak of with UVA students all the time as they wrestle with calling and career and relationships and sports. But it's for all of us because the gospel changes everything. It changes every aspect of our lives. Depending on our vocation, sometimes we'll have to work hard to see it, but our work becomes worship when we begin to see it not as a paycheck or as a status symbol, good or bad, but as a way that we worship our Lord by loving and blessing others through our work. Whether that means landscaping or changing diapers or building hospitals, as Paul says earlier in Colossians, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart because it's the Lord Christ you are serving. Our pastimes, or as Plutarch calls it, our hobbies, become worship as well when we use our gifts to make beautiful things or to refine and renew our minds and bodies or to serve whether that's reading good books, or whether that's cooking or coaching your kid's team or exercising, whatever it is, can we articulate the difference that Jesus makes in every area of our life? Can we communicate that to others who are engaged in those pastimes and that work with us? This doesn't mean we need to become theologians or experts before we speak of how our hope in Christ impacts our lives. But as we think about the gospel's pervasive reach more and more, we will find more and more connection points with our friends and neighbors. And we will know more and more how to gracefully season those conversations with the salt of the gospel that brings life and light to everything that we do. Then we will know how to respond to everyone, as Paul says, not just a few. And so that we, and we will know more and more how to walk in wisdom toward those outside of the faith in the various spheres of our lives. As someone once helpfully said, uh, and I have no idea who it was, we will become natural in spiritual things and spiritual in natural things. In other words, our, our hope in Christ will not be an isolated subject that only has bearing on a narrow slice of life. And that we must more or less artificially drop into a conversation. That's not to say that there's never a place for being more direct as the Lord leads. But it is to say that the more we are living in and experiencing the pervasive grace of Christ, finding out how his grace touches every single square inch of our lives, the more we know that, the more we are seeking that, the more opportunities we will have to share the hope that we have in him. At next week's uh, missions conference, as you may have picked up on, there, there will be a significant in, or emphasis on global missions. And this is good. 
The same Paul who encouraged the Colossian believers and us in local mission through our passage today also committed his life to global mission. At times, uh, the church, or I should say churches, can, can swing wildly and unhelpfully between an emphasis on global or local mission. We want to be a church that neglects neither, a church that is faithful in God's calling to both. And so what I want you to encourage you is that if you attend, and I, I do encourage you to attend next week, as you hear missionaries talk uh, about what they're doing, even if it's on the other side of the world, I want you to consider what it would look like for you to have the mindset that they have in your culture, in our culture here in Charlottesville. And as you hear about the things that they are doing, are there ways that we might perhaps contextualize and do some of the same things in word and deed right here in Charlottesville? Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that you are a God who has come after us on mission. Lord, you call us to follow Jesus, to take up our cross and follow him. And Jesus, his life was mission. His life was for us. Lord, I pray that um, we as a church would be experiencing your grace deeply. Lord, that we would be walking in grace. Individually and together, we would be growing in grace and Lord would you sink your grace so deep in our hearts that we know that we are loved by you that it could not help but overflow into our lives into our relationships into our families our work into everything that we do Lord we ask this um, by your spirit in Jesus name amen